Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. I'm Rowan. And I'm Blue. And we are here to talk about game design. This month, we're not talking about dominant strategies. We are looking at how five games approach double jumps differently. So double jumps are a very iconic feature of a lot of video games, particularly Metroidvanias or exploration platformers, where you can jump again in the air. We are being a little more flexible in our interpretation of double jumps and are using this episode to talk about more sort of mid-air movement options, I guess we can say. Yep. And this is interesting as a topic because, you know, platformers are one of the oldest of old school designs, right? For a lot of budding designers, you make a platformer first. It's very easy to understand. The language is simple. But once you start giving characters air options, even if it's just a double jump, that design space just starts to explode out. And there are lots of different ways that games can approach double jumps that I think they sort of come onto a fairly homogenous double jump at this point. So it'll be interesting to look at how different games tackle this sort of thing. And with that, let's move on to our first game. Super Ghouls and Ghosts. This is the third game in the Run and Gun Ghosts and Goblins series. This is the first where Sir Arthur has a double jump. It was released in 1991 for the Super Nintendo, developed by Capcom, produced by Tokoro Fujiwara, designed by Tatsuya Minami, and Akumio Yamazoe. So the double jumps in this game are a little different to a lot of modern double jumps in that each jump is a fixed arc that cannot be altered outside of being hit or doing the second jump. So most double jumps are about flexibility and like easy adjustments. This is much more a commitment thing. Yeah. uh, If you've never played Ghouls and Ghosts, but you have played like early Castlevania. Yeah. It's like the early Castlevania jump, but twice. But twice. Yeah, basically. Um, And it's it is a lot harsher than Castlevania. Like there's a lot more enemies in Ghouls and Ghosts than, than there are in Castlevania. Yeah. Castlevania is very much a platformer, whereas Super Ghouls and Ghosts is very much a run and gun game. It's more contra than anything. That's right. And I will apologize in advance. At some point, we're going to call this Ghosts and Goblins. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry. I mean, I already dropped the super off the front of the name. Yeah. These which, things will happen. Which is relevant, uh, but we're talking yes. we're talking about Super Ghouls and Ghosts, the third game in the series. So one of the things I think that why this jump works really well for this game is that it's very important to be able to change which way you are shooting while moving. So there needs to be some way to move independently of aiming your shots, and jumps are fulfilling that role. And a lot of the enemy design and boss design kind of revolves around kind of retreating while attacking, I felt. Or being able to like do a jump in to start attacking and then jumping back and continuing. And and I think that the designers for this game had a very good understanding of, of this idea because even the enemies that don't need you to like retreat are placed at various points at elevation. So that you do have to think about, oh, how do I hit them? Well, normally I jump. If I jump and something spawns, and remember that the pace of this game is relatively fast. There is a world where stars can align 
so that you jump, something spawns under you, and if you didn't have a double jump, you would just fall on and take damage. One of the things is that you would think, naturally, I can jump once and then use my double jump to save myself if it's a bad situation. That's not... Quite often here, the double jump might put you in a worse situation even. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very not often the case, yeah. Because you're hard committed to it. The jump arcs are so fixed. However, there is a difference in when you jump after the first jump. Yes, like if you jump at the peak, you'll sort of more or less continue the same thing. Doing two jumps almost very quickly, like yeah. very quickly, is very different. Again, so there's lots of micro variation, and there's a very good Gama Sutra article that is kind of the inspiration for this entire episode. That'll be in the show notes that goes into more detail about the many different arcs that you can create from the system. The, the really cool thing about this game's design, in my opinion, is how you can get such an analog feeling double jump out of very fixed arc commitments. Yeah, it's very fascinating because you would not think that this allows a lot more freedom than maybe some of the games we talk about later because of its limitations. Make no mistake though, this game is hard. This is from the era of coin churners. Like, it, it has the sensibilities of an arcade game that is trying to take all your quarters. Yeah, and so a lot of the fun moments with this double jump are also those coin churning moments. So there are a number of instances where you can pick up extra points, but doing so requires very clever use and very precise use of the double jump to basically throw yourself into danger and double jump out of danger at the last moment. <laughs> yep. Lots of money bags just over a spike pit mm -hmm. or above a bottomless pit bottomless that pit. Yep. are very scary. But it's fun to like push the double jump that far, at least in the modern play setting of having safe states. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? Like back then, those money bags would be so valuable because 10 of those is one more continue. Yes. And that is... In a game that's harsh, in a game that's designed to eat quarters, a continue is very, very... Yeah, like It's a huge currency. Yeah, it is. And this game has no password save or anything like that. There is an no. in-game cheat, I believe, for level select, but there is... You got to do it on one set of lives, basically. Another component to the double jump that really complements it is the variety of weapons you have. We won't go into huge detail about the types of weapons in the game, but... The weapons themselves also have non-traditional arcs, right? You have a couple of weapons that just fire forward, very easy to understand. The lance and the daggers. You got a few that fire, just like you throw them in an arc and then they mm -hmm. do some fire on the ground. So the fire specifically, which is just this bottled fire that is thrown in an arc. Because it's thrown in an arc, sometimes you need to get height to be able to hit something a bit further away or a bit elevated. And it really makes you think about how you are going to use your jump to approach an enemy. A lot of the enemy movement in this game is very simple, and that's for very, very good reason. One of the most annoying enemies to deal with is the Red Arama. The, is it the gargoyles that are the iconic sort of villain of the game, I guess. Correct. And one of the reasons they're so hard to deal with is because they, they feel like they have a more organic movement. They can occupy very many spaces of the screen, sometimes ignoring bits of terrain that you have to respect because they can fly. And hitting them requires usually like some clever double jump shenanigans actually yeah, yeah. touch them. Often I found like they would dive in, so jump over and then use a second jump to just go vertical without any horizontal movement. So I could hit them with my weapons. Yeah, yeah. And I think that um, if you want to take a very 
introductory cursory look at where you can learn a lot of what was done and i think a lot of what not to do to make it feel good this is a fantastic game to do that in. and it's not to say that it's a bad decision of, of to make a double jump this way right it's just that it's very punishing if you get it wrong and that's a specific game feel that you're going for if you want to do that yeah there's a modern spiritual successor to this um the disgaea games have a spin-off sub-series called Prinny where it uses this jump in a modern platformer where you have a thousand lives to get through these things. And you really do need a thousand lives <laughs> to get through this sort of thing in the modern day, I think. Yeah. They're hard. And they're hard games and they're very cool. They're very cool. I will say one thing that caught me off guard, I would say. Um, the double jump is not a jump in the air. The double jump can only be activated off a jump. Um, yes. Mechanically, what it, this means is you cannot walk off an edge and then jump. You sink like a rock the moment you leave the ledge. That is... That's rough, yeah. That's really, really rough. One of the other things that's interesting about this jump is that the arc is not stopped by objects. So, for instance, if you do a forwards jump up against a wall, and by the end of the jump you are slightly over the wall, you'll continue moving forwards once there's no obstacle in front of you. It's not like you run into an, ob an object and then you can't keep going forwards anymore. You're just stuck up and down. Yeah, yeah. Which is something that I had expected to happen here because I knew this game was vicious and punishing, but actually was generally a nice, surprising bit of kindness on its part. Mm. Sometimes it also killed me because everything can kill you. I, I think, what, the most common pitfall in this game is probably overjumping a platform in the opening, like, five seconds of the game. Um, maybe not the opening five seconds, yeah, but yeah, but there's a lot minute. of moments where overjumping things yeah. is the big issue, yeah. especially later when you have more intense platforming challenges where you have a very small space to land on. That is not a single neat jump away. I, and I will say this about the game. Its opening level is actually so well designed in the hectic run and gun sense. For the first few levels, the very first segment is probably the most hectic, like the most enemies spawn in that very first section because you're terrified of enemies at that point. But it makes you very conscious of how you're managing your jumps. And then the game gets into its groove and it's not enemies that are, that are dangerous to you. It's the level design itself. For how difficult it is, it's a surprisingly joyous game. It is. There's one last thing I want to touch on, which is this game has a timer, like a lot of old arcade games. And this, for the most part, doesn't become a huge issue. Mm. But the double jump lets you play fairly defensively in a lot of boss fights that maybe in original Ghosts and Goblins you couldn't have. And this means the timer serves this very important function of making sure you are aggressive enough in approaching a lot of situations. I got to the final boss of the first loop without quite enough time to actually finish him. Yeah, and because you're on safe states, you just don't have enough time with that run. Yeah, so I had to like go back to the start of the level again to actually do a version of the run where I had enough time to actually defeat that first boss. Hmm. And He's when quite I got to him, damage I had he is. And I had to play a lot more aggressively mm. and just like not take hits because there's not enough. You can't tank very much at all in this no, game. No, but you have to jump over his attacks and, and hit him instead of waiting for... Very close. Yeah, instead of waiting for opportunities. Yeah, no, you're actually absolutely right. The, the timer in that final level is very, very interesting. Yeah, I don't think it's super relevant to many other levels, but in the final level especially where there's lots of enemies that are massive damage sinks... Because I think there are like it, two red armors in the lead up... 
There's Chirinamas. There are these like bone dragon things that yeah. take a lot of damage. There's a lot going on in yeah. like the final level of the first loop, and presumably it's just more intense the second time around. Yep. So structurally, this game has two loops. You play through the game again in a harder way. We didn't engage with that no. side of this because we'd seen the levels. If there's a significant difference that you want to bring up to us, you can send that in a message to us. I do love the conceit, though. It's basically, he gets to the door, and he's like, I left my key at home. That's effectively what it is. And he has to go home and get a key. Yeah, your your beloved says, Arthur, you need this special thing to do this. Do it all again. Power it up, whatever. And, like, you might think, oh, I could have gotten that first run through. No, you can't. Literally has to be two runs. As a way of extending gameplay, like, I think it is kind of cool to have, like, a second run that is more difficult yeah. on top of the skills you've already learned. Really that early is... New Game Plus, right? And the Goddess Bracelet does change up how you deal with some boss encounters. So that's cool, but it's also just very hard. And it, it is a hard game to play once, let alone twice, to win. Something that's a lot easier is our next game. So there are a lot of Mario games that we wanted to talk about, so we're going to kind of cheat here and um, say that we're talking about Super Mario All-Stars, which is a remake and collection of Super Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers The Lost Levels, Super Mario Brothers 2, Super Mario Brothers 3, and also often including Super Mario World, all of which developed over a number of years by Nintendo EAD. It's now, worth saying mm -hmm. that Mario 2 is actually, did you know this? Doki Doki Panic. <laughs> correct, correct. Uh, one it's of the an most obligation. <laughs> one of the most infamous did you knows in gaming. Let's add on to that a bit. There actually are uh, some differences to the American uh, Super Mario Brothers two over Doki Doki Panic. Um, I do not know what they are offhand by heart, but there are actually some minor differences once the localization was slated to happen. That's right, and part of that is like completion requirements, so Doki Doki Panic is a lot more intense in what it expects you to do on one set of lives, and I believe it has a true ending that requires finishing it with everyone, as opposed to just one character. So not a straight up just reskin. Uh, yeah, pretty there are a bunch of like little minor physics things as well, I think, yeah, that that's right. slightly change it, but... That obscure trivia that nobody knew before is not why we're here. No, no. Uh, we don't actually have that much to say about Mario 1, other than you can jump in Mario 1. You don't have a double jump. You can jump off enemies to adjust your air options. Yeah. It's a great uh, but, start. Jumping. Good start towards double jump discussion. Yeah. So uh, one of the things, though, is that the Mario series cares a lot about your momentum. Where uh, Super ghouls and ghosts you are immediately at full speed the moment you hit forward or back and your jumps are immediately full speed jumps like maximum distance jumps mario's jumps are a lot more analog even from all the way back in mario 1 and the amount of speed you have doesn't just affect how far your jump will go but affects how high you can jump mm. and to some extent affects how you land because of a little bit of momentum that carries in the later Mario games, you'll actually see this represented with an animation of him, like kind of like facing the other way but skidding along the ground, um, which isn't as uh, apparent in these older ones. But that's totally what it is. It is totally a reversal of your momentum, and the game is respecting 
the physics that Mario has and um, like slowly moving that down as you apply force in the other direction. Uh, and, and all of this is important to talk about because this affects the way you control in the air as well. You have momentum in the air. But before we get up to that point, let's talk about Peach in Mario 2. So Peach in Mario 2 has the ability to float, which has become a very iconic part of the character. And Mario games are about jumping and also landing. So Peach's ability to float acts as a double jump in many ways because it, rather than giving you an extra boost in height, it just lets you keep going horizontally for a significantly large amount of time. And that also lets you just fine-tune jumps. This works like an accessibility option, which I think is a really interesting early way to indirectly manage difficulty. But also just like allowing players take a different, have a different way to take care in landing is something the Mario series will play a lot with in future installments as well. So if you think about the two most common use cases for a double jump, uh, reaching a higher platform slash height or reaching a further point in your jump. Peach's ability doesn't allow you to do the first, but it does allow you to do the second. The other thing, actually, because there are three main reasons for double jumps, the third is to correct a mistake you made. That is a really important usage of it. That's a very, very good point. Yeah, that's the three most common use cases for a double jump. And there are more. There are a lot more. There's a lot more nuance in this, but those will be the three main reasons a player would be attempting to jump again in the air. Um, so Peaches allows for the further horizontal and the correction, yes. But it's probably you know worth moving on because there is a couple of uh, other Mario things that we want to talk about. So in Super Mario Bros. 3, one of the power-ups that you get aside from the Fire Flower is the Tanuki Suit. The Tanuki Suit is pretty simple in application. If you're running at a high enough speed, you can fly. But in our situation, we want to talk about how it lets you slow down your descent. It allows you to traverse some wider gaps, potentially. But the important thing is that it lets you fine-tune where you land. And Mario 3 has a lot more momentum than Mario 2 does, because it's a more traditional Mario game from the outset. And so being able to just like make sure you land exactly where you want is a really big boon, especially for players not as confident in platforming. And once you get to grips with some of the manual dexterity of it, there's even more that you can do aside from just floating. So correct me if I'm wrong, but to ma- to float, you can just hold the button down, right? Um, I thought you had to tap it. Oh, you had to mash. Okay, never mind. I am mistaken. Uh, I I was gonna say you can mash to slow you down even further, but no. I think yeah, you are correct now. Uh, that I think about it, it might well be that in the new Super Mario Brothers games with Tanuki suits and things that you can hold it. Maybe that's a Mario Maker thing. Maybe, maybe. Um, but yeah. The, the Tanuki suit allows you to slow fall. Very similarly to Peach, but... Well, not really. Like, So Peach's thing is that she's at one height, and then she starts being at a height and falls. Right. Tanuki suit is much more... Glide. You gracefully descend. Yeah, yeah. But you are um, always losing heights. That is yes, a very yeah, that, important distinction. It is. Um, and I meant that more in the case of a similar use case to Peach. Yeah, um, you're getting further but not higher. And the flight of the Tanuki suit at maximum speed is a relevant component to Mario's air options. But I think we see a better um, version of that uh, use case to talk about in Super Mario World, where uh, replacing the Tanuki it really feels like a direct replacement to the Tanuki suit, is the cape. Which is maybe my favorite of the Mario flight options. Yeah. I find this so satisfying to do. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the cape, you can use to slow your descent by holding a button, unlike the Tanuki suit. Maybe that's where I was getting it from. <laughs> but also, you can just fly. So when you get high enough, you can open up your cape and 
do some physics shenanigans like dip down, dip up, to basically fly across most levels in the game, actually, if you're good enough at it. Yes. There is a small frame window where you can gain height while flying with the cape, and a relative, a more lenient window where you can maintain your height with the cape, and you just kind of float in the air. In this state, I believe that when you spin, because you, you can spin while in this state, there is a chance for you to turn the other way as well. I think so, and like some speed runs, like that is a big concern when doing that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, and it, and it's, I don't think uh, we've quite figured out the specific conditions to force it to happen and therefore avoid it. But that, like, there is a chance that if you do a spin, which is a move that was introduced in Mario World, uh, Mario Spin, while flying, you can reverse the direction of your um, flight. I've seen ROM hacks that make it a consistent thing, like a ROM hack that's designed around cape flying and cape physics went out of its way to implement code to guarantee that every time you spin while doing the float, you turn around. But there are a few other um, jumping options. So the cape lets you adjust much like Tanuki suit, which is, you know, it's a good system. We've seen it work. Great. It has two other things that I think are worth pointing out. The main one I want to focus on, though, is Yoshi, I think. Because Yoshi, as a double jump, is really interesting, I think, because it's you need to set it up. You need to have Yoshi, which you can then jump and then jump off of Yoshi's back in the air, which leaves him behind. So often players will like see a coin they want, use this, and then jump back on Yoshi, and no problems. Everything's fine. But the game rather iconically has a particular key, the key door, a particular exit, that in order to access it, you have to jump with Yoshi in a way that Yoshi will fall into the pit below you. And it's the only way to access this, unless you use elaborate shell jumps and very good speedrunning techniques and such, I'm sure. My point being, um, this jump is a setup and it's a cost. Unlike other things, it's not just free once you have access to it. You potentially lose the thing that's giving you the double jump. Yep, very limited amount of double jump in that sense. And the Yoshi is also like, it's a life, it's basically you're paying with um, health almost because that yeah. Yoshi counts as a free hit and a reusable free hit as well. Almost more like a Sonic ring than a Mario mushroom. Yeah, totally. Yoshi is to Mario like rings are to Sonic in, in terms of hits. And yeah, that, that's a really interesting use case. It means that you can... And okay, so here's the thing. I don't think Super Mario World particularly was designed to really make use of this. No, I don't think it was designed to make use of it, but it's a pretty logical extension of the systems. Yep. It makes a lot of things easier. And I think that's always the, the path that Mario has taken. The Mario design has always been, if you have a power up here, your life can be a bit easier. Yeah. And I feel like Mario, because these various five powers, they're both like powerful for good players because they let you like dash through levels really efficiently. They give you a lot of more precise control of your character, but they all also work brilliantly as accessibility tools because each of them really smooths over a pain point in the game. Yep. When you are allowed to make more mistakes, you can play more of the game. Like, it's pretty simple. And to tie that into mobility is doubly punishing, even if players don't fully recognize it to begin with. 
And uh, I guess the last point that we want to bring up from you know the traditional Mario series uh, is the concept of a shell jump. This is a bit less intended design uh, than we normally talk about, but it is a very logical progression of the interaction of systems within Mario. So in um, any Mario game, you can jump off of enemies, and uh, this includes... Um, Koopa shells that are left behind by Koopas when you um, jump on them for the first time. In the Mario games where you're able to hold an item, you gain the option to take this shell to um, a wall that you would normally not be able to traverse. And maybe you don't have Yoshi at this point. And what you can do is throw the shell at the wall, let it rebound off towards Mario again. And if you position yourself, if you, if you time this right, if you threw at the right time and the right point of your jump arc, you will be able to jump to land on the shell and effectively jump again. It is the same uh, jumping off an enemy motion that you normally get, but this time because you did it in the air, you can gain a lot more height with it. And the game never really asks you to ever use this, even though it's a logical consequence of the systems, but it is very popular in like a lot of communities and it's sort of, yeah, it's straddling that line very interesting of is it a glitch or is it just like the systems, I guess. If this sounds interesting to you, there's a lot more depth to things like this, but you may go and do some research into the Kaizo community. Kaizo, if I'm not mistaken, is just rearranged. That's right. It is a, it is a community of people who play Mario games primarily that rearrange the Mario games to be as difficult, like, like very difficult, like with varying stages of skill required to the point where some of them are not meant to be played by humans. And you can really see how far the system can be pushed um, out of something so basic and simple like Mario. Yeah, and shell jumps are pretty interesting, like the super conditional double jump that makes Kaizo and Mario Maker stuff quite interesting to look at because it's very commonly used in those yeah. formats. Yep. We're not going to talk about it much because it's sort of outside of our commitment to Mario, I guess. But it's definitely something that should be mentioned in this sort of a discussion of Mario's mobility. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, and, and that's a lot to say about Mario, but I think that is about all we have to say about Mario for now. And let's move on to his counterpart. Sonic Advance 3 is a 2004 platformer and part of an era when just many games on many consoles and formats were experimenting with partner and team mechanics. It was developed by Dimps and Sonic Team, directed by Akinori Nishiyama and produced by Yuji Naka and Koichi Sakita. And if you've played any of the Sonic Advance games, you'll know that it's a very rough series um, of Sonic games. I like them very much, but... There's a lot going on, but what's interesting about Advance 3 in particular is how different characters have different mobility options that all interact differently with momentum. And sometimes the characters that you partner with can impact what your air options are, basically. But let's quickly run through the five characters and their main sort of movement conceit. So Sonic can go fast, but his aerial thing is the off certain springs and grind rails, he can do tricks. Basically, he can get a little bit of an extra forward jump or upward jump after certain specific conditions, which he can only do if Tails is his partner. Tails has flight, and the thing about flight is that it completely cuts out any vertical momentum 
but it maintains all horizontal momentum. Meaning that if you have got a lot of speed, you can use this to go across a long distance, Mm -hmm. but you can't use it to correct if you want to not be going forwards, basically. But if you're about to fall into a pit of spikes, you can use this at the last moment to be like, stop, and you'll be fine. Knuckles has a glide that more or less maintains his forward momentum and just drastically decreases his downward momentum. Cream is where we start getting some more interesting variation here, which is she has a flight much like Tails, but it's a much faster flight that is more momentum-based, as in if she is falling down and you use it, she will simply mitigate the downward momentum, but she won't cancel it. Kind of like a cross between Tails' flight and Knuckles' glide a bit? A little bit, yeah. Although Knuckles is a bit more severe in its reduction of downward momentum than Cream's is. And when Cream is your partner, if you use her partner action by holding the R button, she'll give you access to a similarly momentum-based double jump, where if you are going really fast upwards, you'll go doubly fast upwards. If you're going really far left or right, you'll go more so that way. I noticed a bit of a um, basketball shot kind of arc. Yeah, if you're going left and right, it definitely feels more basketball shotish. That's right. But yeah, so she sort of yeah maintains and sort of doubles momentum from like a reset point. I guess that mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything. Um, when she does this double jump thing, it triggers a similar sort of thing to what you're already doing. And last in the list is Amy, who doesn't have a real traditional air mobility option other than she can use her hammer to go straight down in the middle of the air in some team combinations. With Cream as a partner, she can do tricks like Sonic. And if she hits a spring with a hammer, even out of a jump, she will go much, much higher from that spring. So Amy's not super relevant to this discussion, but the other characters have a lot more going on here. So all this to say is that all these Sonic characters play through the same levels, but they all, in terms of navigation options, have different ways they relate to momentum, I think. And I love that. Like, Sonic games have always done interesting things with momentum, and this cast of characters here probably have the most variation in how they all deal with momentum that if the level design was a bit more easy to understand would be more interesting yeah it's really cool because each son even without really digging in you kind of get this feeling that each sonic character does have a specific gimmick that they've developed over the years but in this game they're adding on to that with a potential partner that you can have that really changes what like the just the breadth of options that you have available to you with any particular given team yeah so like if you team tails and knuckles together with knuckles as the leader and tails as the partner you can t- knuckles flight gets changed so he does like a little bit of a boost jump and then goes forwards mm-hmm. um if you have and tails can either throw him up high or can use flight to help knuckles fly somewhere separately if you invert that, Tails gets a more glide-like fly that preserves momentum more like Knuckles does, as opposed to straight-up flight like Tails traditionally has. Yeah. And things like that are how the partner system sort of works out. And honestly, there's so much cool interaction here. I wish the level design accommodated it a bit more. And I, I guess we do have to talk about that here. Yeah, so one of the sad things about a lot of the Sonic game's level design is that every Sonic game has to be beatable by Sonic, who is always the least diverse in movement options. He can go fast, and that's sort of it. Like, the tricks that he has in this game are sort of a substitute for his movement options, but ultimately he has to be able to get through them, which means the levels can't ever really request that you use a certain character's abilities. 
The game does have chow to find in each level. Each level has, I think, two or three chow to find. And upon collecting all of them, you get chaos emeralds, which let you see the true ending. But so those things often have you need X character to actually traverse the level to get to this point. But actual straight up progression doesn't ever really request this of you. And of course, this isn't a fully limiting factor, right? Because one possible way to design it, um, which I believe this game does do a bit of this, is just giving alternate routes. Yeah, Sonic games always have had a lot of alternate routes. Yeah. That all still tend to be accessible by Sonic. Yeah. Uh, But I think that if the game had committed harder to... You can only do this if you have this team. That would make it feel a bit better. Yeah, the closest it has to that is there are a lot of sections of the game that are behind um a strength wall that only mm-hmm. knuckles or amy can break through yeah and those are always it's kind of a two-sided double-sided sword double two-edged double-edged sword in uh-huh. this case i know how to say things <laughs> yeah um in that those things like oh yeah i could have used this way to this partner pair to get through this thing but ultimately it ends up feeling a lot like keys so while the momentum is cool to play around with all these things Generally, you find that there are a few set patterns you'll fall into. Mm-hmm. You'll find a team for exploration. Yeah. Probably Knuckles and Tails. Yeah. Most controllable, lots of distance that you can cover in the air. And you can get through the strength barriers. Yeah. You'll tend to focus on Sonic and Tails for speed because with Tails as Sonic's partner, he can get a bit of flight options in there. And Sonic, with his speed and tricks, can navigate a level extremely quickly compared to other options, perhaps. And then for bosses, you probably go with Cream and someone, because Cream has a homing attack that is very good and safe. So yeah, this is sort of one of those mixed bags in a sense of like, it's got a lot of, it's got a strong, strong core system here that the level design sort of fails to support, which is the unfortunate thing. I will also add another thing to this. Double jump is one tool in, well, not just double jump, but all these air mobility options. They're one aspect of adjusting mobility. And mobility and exploration is really cool and interesting if you can see enough of the level. And I think that's one of the other like, small failings, which is, I think, a really good lesson to learn from. I think it's just too close enough for me to really feel confident in making blind jumps. Yeah, that's definitely true. And if you watch a YouTube series called Game Boy World by Jeremy Parrish, he does a lot of like chronological looks at Game Boy games. And just the use of space on a Game Boy screen is a continuous issue for the entirety of the original Game Boy and even up to the Game Boy Advance. Like it takes a long time for developers to work out how best to spend screen real estate that these movement options because sonic is fast and these movement options get you in a lot of different places it's hard to know when you'd want to use these things yeah and and the i I guess substitute for having a more forgiving camera is learning the stage layout by memory yeah which is a critique of sonic advance 2 and 3 that these games are too fast and too zoomed in to like just know what is going to go on in the level before you do it. Now, this is not to say that you should zoom out as far as possible to make your movement options like very useful, right? That, this is not what I'm trying to say here at all. Yeah, there's a balance though. There's a certain balance you want to strike where you don't want to ask too many blind jumps or too many blind leaps of your player, especially if you have a lot of forward um, moving um, abilities. Because when you have all those blind jumps, you don't know what movement option is actually going to help you out. Yeah, that's right. Because in Sonic Advance 3, there's a lot of times where I might have thrown myself out and like, I don't know if I'm falling into a bottomless pit or if I'm supposed to be going this way. 
and my stutter glide just to run into a wall that I was supposed to just be somewhere lower at. So even if you have the best feeling air options, double jumps ever made, if you don't design the level and even design the camera well enough to be able to make use of it, it's going to feel a bit like flat. Uh, and that's a like, really good lesson to take from this because otherwise... These are really cool movement options. Like you very rarely see these angles, uh, momentum preservation in, in video games. They're just not easy to implement. In a lot of double jumps, things are much more, you do a jump and the next jump will be its own set of momentum. Maybe a little bit of forwards momentum and speed, but a lot of it's pretty resetting, especially in Metroidvanias, yep. which our next game is one of. The Messenger is a 2018 exploration platformer developed by Sabotage Studio, developed by Philip Barclay, and designed by Thierry Bolanger and Philippe Dion. And I'm sorry about some of those names. I'm not so great at every language, unfortunately, but hopefully it's a good enough approximation. So this game starts off as a relatively typical linear platformer that very quickly, in fact, even before the game tells you about this mechanic, you can use it, which is Cloud Step. It's a limited double jump in which if you have hit something while in the air, you can do another jump. It's extremely easy to trigger. There are lots of lamps and things in the environment that are not enemies that you can use to trigger it, but also you can use it to attack an enemy in the air or attack a projectile of an enemy in the air and then do an extra jump. It's pretty simple in terms of concept. Each jump is independent of the other jumps, and these jumps do not carry forward any momentum of a previous jump, and they do not, um, yeah, they do not maintain any momentum from anything else, basically. The game itself doesn't carry too much momentum. Like, you can turn on a dime, you can just turn around midair and control yourself quite well throughout any instance of yeah. the game. Yeah, there's a small grappling hook and that's sort of like the most momentum thing that I feel like you get mm. if you do like a glide from it and that's about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the really interesting aspects to Cloud Step is the fact that um, majority of your enemies are one-hit kills, which is not only nice for players because, ah, you, kill, you hit them once they die, but it means that if you're going for a cloud step move, you have one chance to get it right. Yes-ish. Ish. Because Ish. the thing is that for any part of the map that the designers want you to cloud step your way past obstacles, there are usually objects you can hit that are static in the background, basically. And usually lit up lamps. That's the, the, the way that the game identifies this is a background object that you can hit. Is usually that it is a lit up object, like a lamp or something. So, so for the intended cloud step paths, 100%. But you can cloud step, not in unintended ways. They're all like very, very intendedly placed enemies for it. Yeah, the designers have talked a lot about in interviews that they want people to do ridiculous stuff in cloud step and that many levels have a deliberately planned path that lets you do a more efficient walk through it if you cloud step the dangerous way rather than the safe way. Uh, but what I mean is that if you go for that dangerous way, oftentimes you have one shot at it. Yes, uh, that's Barring right, a screen reset. And here's the other thing as well. The game respawns enemies effectively the moment they're off screen and you walk back on. Yes, which can get very frustrating, but is also very convenient given how cloud step functions. And I guess we should add on that one of the very early upgrades, which you prob- most players will get straight away, I think, is um, the ability given to... Given the pricing of upgrades, it's one of the first, at least. Yeah, certainly. 
is the ability to just um, attack projectiles. I wonder about that being an upgrade. It's sort of like, I get it because they want players to send a little bit of time in the game being maybe a bit afraid of projectiles to instill, like, be careful. But it feels like it should just be a core verb. Like Cloud Step, you can trigger before the tutorial for Cloud Step has occurred. It feels like maybe this should have been one of those things too. I think it makes sense here. So I can see arguments both ways. And then, and my argument designer-wise for why it is an upgrade is to make it a conscious choice. Mm, so the players like have sat down and seen like, oh, I can do this. Yeah, it gives players a very easy, I figured this out on my own. Because the game doesn't tell you you can cloud step up projectiles. It just says you can hit projectiles now. It just tells you can hit projectiles. So there's still that moment of being really clever and so I've played through the game a full run once and I replayed a bunch of it for prep for this and playing through it, knowing how this whole thing works is just like, wow, you can just do so much. Like doing the paths that are planned, but not the default paths is so satisfying. It's like you set up a pattern, you see it coming and you do like hit projectile, jump, hit projectile, jump, hit enemy, jump into secret area, get lots of currency that generally is not that useful and feel good about having gotten there. I have issues with some Metrovanias in that many of them feel like collecting stuff is essential. One of the nice things in the messenger is that most things you find are not that important, if that makes sense. So it's like you either get power medals that don't pan out to being very useful but they are a little useful if you get them all. And extra currency, which you will just accumulate a lot of as you play, so missing out on some bursts of it here and there isn't that valuable or isn't that consequential, but is nice if you are struggling. And I think that like makes the cloud step getting you to cool places more fun rather than like feeling necessary, which I think is a good balance for what is a fairly difficult game initially, at least. Mm. So a very obvious question to me is, how does this compare to just a normal double jump, right? So what's really different about it compared to other double jumps is that it's A, you don't initially have a double jump, you just do a single jump, and you have to engage with something to get the second jump. And I think it's that the double jump is dependent on you doing things, and as long as you keep interacting with stuff, you can keep double jumping. And a bunch of the later puzzles actually have things like you hit a switch. And what the switch being hit does is it pushes the switch up higher. So you do hit switch, jump to meet the switch, hit switch again, jump to meet the switch. And you might chain five or six jumps through pushing the switch up with continuous hits. Another way to look at this is it's a double jump with more steps, right? Now, one of the consequences of this is that it adds a... Um, small price on the double jump of dexterity from the player. Instead of just jump, jump, you now need to be able to jump, attack, jump. And often the timing can be a little harsh. Like it's a, often for like the plan pass, just like jump and pretty quickly do the second jump after hitting something. So I found to me personally that to use this like a traditional double jump, even when the enemies are positioned absolutely correctly, you need it to effectively roll attack into jump. The, the game is built well, and so the inputs come in and are very responsive. But if you have any kind of delay between uh, pushing attack and your second jump, for example, the delay that would be involved between a thumb pressing a button, lifting up, and then pressing the next button, uh, that's actually enough for you to fall a decent amount already from the peak of your jump. So to get a double jump where you jump off the peaks, you need to just roll the attack button into the jump button. Like, this is not a pro or a con. This is just something to consider when considering the design of CloudStep and how it's been implemented in the Messenger. Very interesting and you know not necessarily a bad thing, but it is a cost for the player to absorb. 
yeah, if you don't get onto a technique like that pretty early on, it can make the game a lot harder. I am blessed with wide, fat thumbs, so that's very easy for me to do. But if you were more slender in the thumb department, it might not be so easy for you. The game later does give you a bit of leniency by giving you a glide suit, which you can do in a downward attack from that basically allows you to sort of stay hovering above a lamp and sort of keeping your double jump ready for when you want to commit to it, which is useful, although the finger gymnastics to maintain that are also not trivial. You need to be holding A while pressing B, mm-hmm. which is, you know, not trivial for many play- players. And, and then to actually access the jump is letting go of A and pressing A again. I only bring this up because for for any of us who are, you know, very used to platformers, very used to video games, um, all of this is sensible, easy, and effectively just one small learning process away from becoming second nature. Just want to reiterate, this is not a given. If the messenger was someone's first platformer, that learning process will be a bit harder. And I mean, the messenger is very much a game that is trading in like meta expectations of what game should be. A lot of its humor is derived from this is what games are like, isn't it? You know what to expect here because you've played games like this before, right? I guess it sets up the expectation of not being a first platformer, but it's definitely an interesting point that this is very much not an ideal first platformer. But our next game may not be an ideal first platformer, but it is an interesting one if it would be. Ori and the Blind Forest is a 2015 exploration platformer, sometimes called Metrovania, developed by Moon Studios, produced by Gennady Korol, and designed by Thomas Mauer. Uh, I do apologize if I got those names incorrect. Uh, it's always a challenge with names outside of our cultural contexts. But yeah, Ori and the Blind Forest, what a, what a great game from its time that I have personal feelings about that also trickle feeds you movement options as befits a metroidvania um, exploration platformer and slowly just expands your movement repertoire to honestly by the end of the game it feels like you can do 15 different things that's not true that's not the number you can only do about 10 different things actually (laughs) yeah but but it it really feels (laughs) like only 10 it really feels like you have so much at your disposal. You start with a wall slide, which leads into a wall jump. So, so being able to just jump up walls and cling to them. And I think one of the first, if like I think in the first three upgrades, if not the second one, is your very traditional double jump. I think it might take a little longer. I don't think it's super early. Oh, you don't think it's super early? Okay. Well, I mean, the the game is short. Like it's six-ish hours. So, like, yeah, it's that in the first might- half. That might be where I've like gotten it confused. It's certainly early in the game. You get your traditional jump, double jump. And the way this double jump works is after you take your first jump or any time you're in the air, if you haven't used it yet, you can just hit jump uh, and you'll just do a jump again. And it's I, not nearly as strict as the Ghouls and Ghosts versions where you know your, your arcs are fixed. Um, you can just jump and then adjust your momentum in the air as you see. And if I recall right, the double jump is not... The other games that we've talked about double jumps in, The Messenger and um, Super Ghouls and Ghosts, the double jump is like more or less an identical version of your base jump. But again, Ori's double jump and through an optional upgrade, triple jump, are much more small, if I recall correctly, right? Yeah. Like, they're not a straight doubling of your entire jump height. No, no. It, it feels like if you were in midair, you boosted over an object as opposed to being able to crouch into a full jump again. 
Yeah, it's more like a um a Smash Brothers short hop for your second jump. Totally relatable to most of the people listening. <laughs> I mean, Smash is popular. Smash is popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, it gives you height, which is like the context that you need it for to begin with. You don't tend to use it for distance very much in the game. Yeah, it's very much a height thing. The game gives you lots of... You only have a pretty wide jump arc, so you can usually get across something. Mm-hmm. Ori is a floaty character. She um she she doesn't fall at the like greatest speed, which gives people time to react. So instead of building in something like a glide mechanic, Ori just tends to float a bit in the air. Although we do get a glide mechanic, we get um the feather that lets you yeah gently fall. Correct. That also catches updrafts some sections of the game, so that you can go completely vertical without like a trampoline or something. And then... Yeah, like, we've been dancing around this final one, yeah. The the really big one, in both of our opinions, that really made Ori something special, aside from everything else that it does amazingly, is an ability that the game calls Bash. It is ostensibly an attacking ability. Yeah, it's really interesting how it doubles up. This is sort of almost... Not in the inverse. This is an interesting variant on Cloud Step, or Cloud Step, more accurately, is an interesting variant on this. Yes. Uh, because Ori does come before the messenger. But okay, so what does Bash do? Bash is an ability where if you are... You you have to be in a certain proximity, correct? Yes, you have to be near either... An enemy or a projectile or... Yeah, yeah. And when you're in enough of a proximity, if you hold down the button to Bash, time slows and eventually stops. And you're able to direct Ori in a direction. And the inverse of the direction that Ori goes is where the thing that you are bashing will go. Hmm. So if it's an enemy, you'll be able to launch an enemy away from you. If it's a projectile, you'll be able to launch the projectile away from you. And yeah, as I said, it's, it's initially introduced as a combat mechanic, and you actually use it as a way to fight to begin with, to launch a projectile back at an enemy that you didn't have a good way of approaching. But the reality of what this opens up is fantastic. This means that Ori circumstantially has a not just a triple jump, but a, a, a cannon shot for herself. And a chainable cannon shot that is not only offensive potentially, but also defensive because... Ori doesn't have a lot of like classical defensive options, so they can just simply grab a projectile to get it away from them, regardless of using it to attack something or not. So it helps keep them very safe. Yeah. Um, however, there are definitely situations in the game where you are tempted into a bash that will launch you into spikes if you try to use it to attack. Which is fantastic. Now, this is very noticeably a different trajectory of jump from the double jump. Yeah, it's sort of about the same size that you can yeah fire it in any direction. So you can even fire it down if you wanted to. And you gain more distance with it if you were going straight up as well. Which allows for really fantastic level design in, you know, in various parts of the game. It also ups the importance of enemies and level placement. So some Metroidvanias, after a certain point, enemies can feel either like a nuisance or trivial. In Ori, every enemy still has a lot of value to you because they are a potential source of projectiles, which means a potential source of navigation. And it's satisfying to chain these together. Like it feels good for like the full like four or five hours that you have this ability for before you finish the game. 
And as the game goes on, you start to get a lot less of just enemies that just shoot at you, a lot more vents, or like, like effectively cannons from Mario. All they do is they fire a projectile because it's important for you to have a steady string of them. They do a lot to yeah, up both the dramaticness of like the difficulty of the platforming by being an obstacle, but also being yeah an asset. Um, so both instances of The Messenger and Ori in the Blind Forest use double jumps in a very interesting way, which is like quite relatable to what we talked about in Dominant Strategies of can play it safe, but because these mobility options come at the uh, re- with the requirement of proximity to a potentially dangerous thing, it makes gameplay organically more like riskier, uh, at risk of like flopping that sentence completely. It increases the risk of all of your mobility options, which makes it more interesting. And it, the platformers very rarely deeply integrate enemy placement into the platforming. Hmm. I feel like it's often very like, this is now a fighting area, this is now a platforming area. Sometimes you have pogoing, which is, you know, like Goomba jumping with Mario. Sometimes you have that. But in, in both of these cases, yeah. Yeah, they deeply integrate. Like platforming and combat are the same action. It feels once you have Bash and Ori. There's a lot of combat in Ori that is not like bash related and does feel a bit separate, but these things are like deeply tied in a way that yeah is not very common in the genre, at least in my experience of it. Yeah, certainly. Um, and that might be everything we have to say. Bash is good. Bash is amazing. Bash is amazing. I I guess um, <laughs> we have a bit of time. So I'm just gonna say this. Um, Ori is a beautiful game, and it's it's a beautiful sounding game as well. You know, when we talk about it in a mechanical sense like this, there isn't that much of an opportunity for you to kind of get that um if you haven't yet and you want to check out bash please do so uh, and if you do so check out the beginning of it as well i think it has a fantastic opening sequence it's also interesting to note um there's a game called rivals of ether which is a smash brothers like fighting game that has a few indie characters in it one of which is ori and sign your um spiritual assistant i guess and Bash is one of your key options. Like, it's one of the iconic abilities Ori has. And it's really well implemented in that fighting game context that is a little different to what we're doing now. But if you have played Ori and want to see Bash work in a different, like, mechanical landscape, Rivals of Ether is a really good chance to have a look at that. And with that, we'll head into the end. So let's review what we looked at. So to start with, we looked at Super Ghouls and Ghosts. We looked at fixed arc double jumps and how they can play into changing up how you approach situations and how maybe lack of flexibility can create more flexibility and encourage you to take routes and paths that you may not have otherwise done. We then moved on to the Mario series, specifically looking at Super Mario All-Stars to cheat a number of games in. But across those games, we saw Peach with a float, just maintaining height to extend the distance that you can travel off a jump, the Tanuki suit and a glide, the cape from Mario World with the fly, Yoshi enabling double jumps. And then we looked at Sonic Advance 3, which takes the classic Sonic characters and has each one with pretty distinct momentum options for their air-based movement. So we have things like Tails' Flight, maintaining horizontal but not vertical momentum. We have things like Cream's Flight, which maintains all momentum, and various other momentum options that all change how you fly and move about in the air. 
Then moving on to the messenger where double jumps were a triggered resource. If you attack something, you can maintain a jump to keep going somewhere else, encouraging you to more directly use enemies as a method of navigation as opposed to simply an obstacle stopping you from progressing. And finally, Ori in the Blind Forest, where Ori has a very traditional moveset with just a typical double jump, gaining a bit of height, some wall jump and cling. Um, but the introduction of the very unique bash mechanic, allowing you to, you know, very similar to the messenger, use an enemy, but also apply it, apply that enemy slash projectile as an offensive ability and really combining the two aspects of uh, platforming navigation with combat, which is a lot to say about, you know, five very interesting games, um, five very interesting, yeah, games that looked at double jumps or air options in, you know, how we can change them to make it more interesting for the player. Uh, astute listeners will have realized that this is all primarily 2D. While developing the list for this series, uh, for this episode, we initially had some ideas for uh, a couple of 3D uh, entries as well, but realized that, look, even if we just nail it down to just the 2D, we still have a lot of very interesting gimmicks slash mechanics slash implementations to look at. Uh, so we focus on 2D this time, and there may be an episode for Double Jumps with 3D in the future. If you have an idea of a game that you'd like for us to talk about and explore in that context, do let us know. Yeah, I think we've got a few ideas what would go in that sort of 3D Double Jump box, but I don't think we have a full list yet, and I think it'd be fun to get some ideas from other people, especially maybe more recent 3D Double Jumps. But yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening, as always. If you want to talk with us about anything we discussed, correct us, suggest games that maybe we missed for this topic, you should tweet at the show, at Platinum Pit. We always love talking about these games even more. And you can also find our personal Twitter accounts in the show notes. If you aren't one for Twitter, though, we have a Facebook page and an email there in which you can contact us through. So this is a bit new to us, but we'd like to start asking you, our fans, to share the show a little bit. We really enjoy doing this, but we would like to reach a bigger audience if we could. So at present, the only way to really do that is word of mouth. So if you had a topic that you really enjoyed, maybe share it with a friend. And to finish off, we're changing up our ending from being fairly mysterious and a bit unsolvable to being very direct and easily followed. Next month, we're looking at sequelization, and the titles we're talking about are Risk of Rain 1 and 2, A Link to the Past and A Link to the and A Link Between Worlds, Street Fighter 1 and 2, Mass Effect 1 and 2, and of course, the Disgaea series. If you have any thoughts on these titles and how they manage being sequels, We'd love to hear your thoughts and include them in the show. You'll have up until the end of July to submit anything that you want us to hear and mention on the episode. And with that, thank you for listening.